0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we're going to be doing a sermon series called Seven, where we are focusing on the seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues. The goal of this sermon series is to help us focus on our journey with Jesus as he moves towards Holy Week. I hope you enjoy.
1: Our first scripture comes to us from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man... Went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord.
0: Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew 21, verses 1 to 13. When they had come near Jerusalem, and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought them the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees. Those are the palms that you're holding, and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. So we have come to the end of Lent. Can you believe it? It's already over. We're entering into Holy Week, which means, of course, that we are now at the end of our seven sermon series. And it's a sad time. I know you're going to mourn the fact that we're (laughs) passing on from talking about the seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues. I hope that at the end of each week you uh, took the opportunity to, you know, test it out. Test out the sin, see what that's all about. And then, you know, test out the virtue on the other side to see which one you like better. Hopefully you ended up with the virtue, right? Well, we've gone through all of them today, and we're at the end. We're dealing with the deadly sin of pride and the cardinal virtue of humility. And many theologians have come forth and said that... Pride is really the root of all of these sins. That if you, if you look at pride, that's where they all kind of stem from. So, I don't know, you may or may not agree by the end of what we talk about today. Pride is an interesting word, isn't it, in our culture? It's a word that even though we're talking about it in terms of sin today, it has both positive and negative connotations within our culture. So in American society, you can have somebody come up to you and say that you've done something very well that you should be proud of yourself and that's because in our society right if you've done something well particularly within the realm of your job and your work or a hobby that you are given permission to take some satisfaction in that some pleasure out of it but pride is a tricky thing right because you're allowed to take pride in what you're doing up to a certain point but if you take too much satisfaction and too much pleasure from what you've done, well, then you cross over and your pride has moved into the realm of vanity and egotism. So it's okay to take some pride in what you've done, but you always want to leave room to temper it with humility. It's interesting, isn't it, how pride, there's a very fine line between pride and humility. And isn't that really the case with a lot of these sins? That it's a very fine line between the sin and the virtue. And that's what I want to discuss today. I want to talk about where does the line exist between pride and humility? How can you be proud, in the most positive sense of the word, of the things that you've done without moving into arrogance? And how can you be prideful of the things that you've done, in the best sense of the word, while also maintaining a lot of modesty and humility? You know, every single culture, you go back thousands of years, all cultures have attempted to figure out and discern where that line exists. And they often do it through stories, whether they be fictional or non-fictional stories, to describe what happens when pride causes a person's downfall. And perhaps my favorite story of all the ones that have been told throughout history, when it comes to what can happen to you when you are prideful, is the myth of Icarus. Have you all heard this myth before? I'm sure you have. I want to walk you through it because there's parts of it that you may be a little rusty on and may not remember. So the Greek myth of Icarus actually begins on the island of Crete. The island of Crete was run at this time by a king named Minos. And King Minos, he had gathered together all the greatest minds of his day in order to be in his royal court. So he could call on them whenever he needed. And one of these people was a man named Daedalus. Daedalus. He was considered to be the greatest inventor of his time. And King Minos brought him into the kingdom so that he could be an architect for King Minos. Well, one day, King Minos, he approaches Daedalus and he says to him, hey, we got a little bit of a problem on our hands. There's a minotaur, a creature which has half the body of a bull and half the body of a human, running around the island wreaking havoc. The minotaur was a very violent creature. It had a voracious appetite. And it had run through most of the food supply, and now it was focusing on eating young people. And so, King Minos says, we need to do something about this, and I have an idea. I want you to build a labyrinth for me that is so intricate that a person could get lost inside of it interminably. So Didellus, he sets to work, and he does. He creates a labyrinth that's so complex that even Didellus himself has trouble finding his way out. And then they lure the Minotaur into the labyrinth where it roams around trying to find its way out. And what King Minos does is he decides that he's going to take his enemies and put them on the inside of the labyrinth where the Minotaur will then find them and, of course, they will meet their end. But King Minos, he was kind of a bad dude, not a great guy, and he gets paranoid that Daedalus is going to release the secret of how to get out of the labyrinth. So he ends up locking Daedalus and his son Icarus, inside of a tower. Well, Didalus, as you can imagine, was not super thrilled about being locked inside of a tower for the rest of his life. So he makes plans to escape. And as he's looking out his window, he sees birds flying around, and he realizes he's not going to be able to get off the island via land, going to sea. No, he's going to need to fly off of the island. And so he comes up with an invention. He's going to create a pair of wings for himself and his son. And these wings, they were made out of wax feathers. And when he had them all together, he tells his son, he says, look, as we fly, don't fly too close to the ocean for that will dampen the feathers or too close to the sun for that could melt the feathers. So they take off and they begin going and before long creed's in the background, they're flying away. But of course, Icarus does not heed his father's advice and being enamored with the freedom of flight, he flies higher and higher into the sky And as he goes higher, unfortunately, the feathers begin to melt more and more until eventually there are no feathers left on his wings and he's flapping his arms without anything. And he then dives and plunges deep into the ocean where he drowns. That image of Icarus falling to his death, that's an image where we get the proverb, the pride before the fall, which of course is also in our Bible as well. That's a proverb that's there. We don't know exactly who came up with it first, but it was common in all cultures. Now why I like this particular myth so much is because I think it tells us something quite profound about pride and what it can do to us. Now what you may have noticed about this story is that Icarus isn't even really the focal point of it, right? I mean, who is the focal point? His father, right, Tidellus, he's the inventor. He's the one who comes up with all this stuff. Literally, Icarus, he's like riding on his father's coattails, or probably more accurately, his father's feathers in this case, right? So when we tell this story, though, I'd the the myth of Icarus, you all knew exactly what I was talking about, right? But if I told you the myth of Tidellus, would you have been like, uh, okay, that sounds good, right? No, you wouldn't have remembered Tidellus is the focal point of the story. We don't remember him. We remember Icarus. Why? Because he dies. Because he doesn't make it, right? And why does he die? Because he doesn't listen to his father's advice. Which was what, by the way? Not too high? Not too low? Right in the middle. He doesn't follow the advice because he wants to take a risk. And this is something very important. Pride is often connected with risks. Even though I know the story is mythical, let's... Let's just assume that it's real for a moment. What might have happened when they took off? So initially, you can imagine he was probably doing exactly what his father told him to do, right? He's right in the middle. But then what happens? He might catch a little little updraft, and he goes up a little bit, and he looks, and he's like, hold on a second. Feathers are still good, and so he decides, okay, I'm going to go up a little higher. And he checks. Things seem to be going okay. And then he thinks to himself, maybe my father was lying to me. Then he goes up a little bit higher, and everything still seems to be okay. And then he thinks to himself, you know what? These rules don't apply to me. I can do whatever I want. And that's when he falls. You see, what this story illustrates to us so well is that the problem with pride, or when pride becomes a problem, is when we think the rules don't apply to us. When we think that our actions are justified and that we can do whatever we want and we are exempt from consequences, that is when pride becomes sinful. The reason why this happens is because pride often blinds us to when we've crossed that line into believing that the rules don't apply to us. And that's because pride is bound up in this belief that we are right and other people are wrong. And this is exactly what you heard T.C. read this morning in the parable, right? Parable is a pretty easy parable to understand, isn't it? Basically, there's two guys and they're going up to the temple to pray. One guy is a Pharisee, the other guy is a tax collector. We all understand that everybody hates the tax collectors. You all hate tax collectors to this day, right? So no big deal, we all get that one. But the Pharisees, the thing about the Pharisees, is that they were considered holy people. And that would have been like watching somebody like Mother Teresa go up to pray. And so we get to go inside their minds. And the Pharisee, he speaks and he says, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like other people. Like thieves, rogues, adulterers, or yeah, even this tax collector over here. And the tax collector, he prays and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now the implication behind both of these men is that they're both wrong. I mean, that's what Jesus wants to understand. The implication behind the parable is that both of these men are in the wrong, but only one of them has the ability to see it. And therefore, Jesus wants us to understand that the greater of the two men is the one who has the humility to admit that he is wrong. The human capacity to believe that our way of thinking is the right way of thinking is one of our greatest weaknesses. It may be the greatest weakness that we possess. It is so hard for us to admit that we are wrong, even when evidence to the contrary is staring us in the face. And I think the reason that why this happens to us is because there's a lot riding on us being right. If you admit that you're wrong about one thing, what does that do? It opens the door for you to be wrong about other things. And before you know it, the entire foundation of everything you believe to be true can be upended. This happens to religious people all the time. So for instance, let me give an example. It is very common among Americans who are Christian, this is not true of people around the world necessarily, but it's very common among people who are Christian in America to believe that every word written in the Bible was literally written by God. Literally, God took somebody's hand and wrote it out. Okay, it's very common for people to believe that to be true. Now, what this means is, is that when you read in Genesis chapter 1, that the earth was created in six days, then by God, the earth was created in six days. The earth is not four and a half billion years old. There is no such thing as evolution. And anybody who makes a claim to the contrary is wrong. Because here's the thing if the first page of the Bible is wrong, Genesis chapter 1, that's page 1. That's when you open it up. If page 1 is wrong, what does that say about the rest of the Bible? What does that say about Abraham? What does that say about Moses? Most importantly, what does that say about Jesus? You tip over that one domino, and the whole thing falls apart. So what I want you to understand is that there are major consequences to having... Our world upended by admitting that we're wrong when you admit that you're wrong that can ripple out beyond you to other people in your life so let me go back to the people who tend to believe that every word in the Bible is literally God wrote it with somebody's hand so a lot of these Christians will often believe that the world is 6,000 years old and that ultimately because of this belief they will homeschool their children. And this is nothing against anybody who homeschooled their children here, but these particular people, they will homeschool their children because they don't want their kids to necessarily be exposed to the science of biology. Because biology promotes an evolutionary worldview. Now, why don't they want that to happen? Well, they don't want that to happen Because once they're exposed to that, what's that going to do to the kid? How's that going to impact the child? Well, in the first place, right, think about it. They've been spending their whole lives teaching their kids that this is the way that you look at the world. They've taught their kids what? That the Bible is factually and historically true. Every word of it. Every word of it. And so when you are presented with a scientific worldview, you are being presented with an alternative that conflicts with that. So what's gonna happen to the child? Well, at the very minimum, the child is going to begin questioning the beliefs taught to them by their parents. It could lead to the idea that the child will eventually come to the conclusion that the parents are wrong and that the parents have been misleading them their entire lives. So even though there is all of this evidence out there to suggest that the universe is billions of years old and that we evolved from lower primates, They do not want to expose their children to that because they want to hold on to their beliefs. Why? Because it's so much easier to cling to your beliefs than it is to deal with the consequences of possibly admitting that you might be wrong. And that is the sin of pride. Now, I use them as an example only because it's easy to understand. I'm not trying to say that these are bad people. Like, a lot of people who believe this are very good people. I'm using that because it's easy to understand, but the fact is every single person in here, we suffer from the same type of thinking. No difference between us and them. We just do it in different places. All of us want to believe that our version of reality is the right version of reality. All of us want to believe that our way of thinking is the right way of thinking. And you know why? Because wherever you have invested your time, you want to believe that that investment is worthwhile. I mean, think about it for a second. These people who I was talking about, where they believe every word is true, how much time have they invested into the Bible seeing it that way? Decades of their lives sometimes. That's a lot of time to look at the world that way and then all of a sudden to feel like, oh, this doesn't work anymore. So do you feel like it was worthwhile if all of a sudden you're just gonna abandon that? No. But the same thing can be applied to other parts of our lives. It can be applied to friendships. It can be applied to raising children. It can be applied to our jobs. Wherever you invest your time, you want it to be worthwhile. I mean, who wants to admit that they wasted 10 years of their life on a friendship, right? Like, who wants to admit that? That's why we got friends that are hanging around for years because we're like, ah, well, you know, I've invested this much time in them. I might as well keep it going, you know? You don't want to admit that it wasn't worthwhile. Nobody wants to admit that they raised their kids wrong, right? I mean, even though evidence of that might be standing directly in front of you every time you see them, the fact is, you don't want to admit that to be true, and you say, eh, you know, I did what I could. Some things are out of my control. Nobody wants to admit that they wasted their career, that their career was a total waste of time. I mean, this is big for me, I have to tell you that. You know, I'm a pastor. I've dedicated my life to serving God. But what if there is no God? I mean, you guys are here for like an hour on Sunday morning. I'm like 24-7 in this thing, right? I mean, it's a little different for me on that end. I've invested my whole life in this. And when I die, if God doesn't exist, well, that's kind of a bust, isn't it, after all these years? <laughs> so the fact is, do I want to admit that that's a possibility? Not really, you know? Well, this mentality, the belief that we've invested in one way of thinking and we want it to be worthwhile, this is what happens to Jesus' disciples on Palm Sunday. They had one way of thinking about Jesus. They wanted to believe that their way of thinking was right, and what happens on Palm Sunday is they find out that actually they were quite wrong. And then in fact, like Icarus, they end up plunging back to earth. So can I set the stage for you? Do you mind if I come down a little bit? You come down. Is that okay? let okay. turn on the monitors. You can see me on the side. So here's the stage. Let's talk about it. What's happening is that Jesus' disciples, they had invested a lot of time in Jesus. A lot of time in Jesus. And they believed that this day was going to be the payoff day. And what you all may not realize is that Palm Sunday was a day they had been looking forward to for a long time. They didn't call it Palm Sunday, by the way. They weren't like, oh, I can't wait for Palm Sunday to get here, right? (laughs) They didn't do that at the time. It was just they were looking for this particular day because it was going to prove that all their investment and all their time had been worth it up to this point. So what happens? Jesus, he's making his way into Jerusalem, and he's on the back of a cult. Now, why does that matter that he's on the back of a cult? Because that is the horse of kings. That's the horse of kings. The disciples, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was going to be the new king of Israel. And today was the day that he was going to claim his throne. And at first, everything seemed to be going well. As he comes into Jerusalem through the gates, people are taking off their cloaks and they're putting them on the ground. Now this... This was a tradition that was reserved for kings. And then people start cutting down these palm branches, these (laughs) eco-friendly palm branches that are not environmentally bad and are not hurting the environment at all. And they start laying them down before him. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? It's because in Judaism, there was a ritual where you would cut down palm branches and you would lay them out and it represented celebrating the spoils of war. So the idea was once he becomes king, Israel will become a separate nation and now they will be able to fight off the Roman government. So that's the idea, that's why they're putting them down because now they're gonna be all on their own. So Jesus, as he goes in, people are shouting to him, Hosanna, Hosanna. To the son of David. Now, what does Hosanna mean? Save now. Save now. now. And who's David? David is the greatest king in Israel's history. A man after God's own heart. Save now, son of David. Save now. People are expecting big things. The new king has arrived. So, Jesus, he's making his way into Jerusalem on the cult. Disciples in tow. And he's going towards the temple. Now, do you know why the temple is so important in this? It's because at the time, the Jews believed that when you got to the temple, or when the Messiah would appear, he would appear at the top of the temple. And he would call all Israel to himself to begin the movement. That's why it was important. So he's going to the temple, he's doing exactly what he should do. And he gets there, he dismounts from the horse, and he enters into the temple courtyard. The disciples are like, this is it. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for because in a moment, what's going to happen to them? They're going to become some of the most important people in all of Israel. When he becomes king, they're going to be his seconds in command. He walks in, he goes forward, and just as quickly as he built up all their hopes, he dashes them to the ground. He starts driving people out of the temple courtyard. He starts turning over the tables of the money changers. He's flinging stuff everywhere. And he's saying that you've turned God's house into a den of robbers. Can you imagine the look on the disciples' faces at this time? They're like this, right? As people are like fleeing past them, trying to get out, and they're thinking to themselves, what is happening? What is going on? This is not how this was supposed to turn out. No, in that moment, as they watched it, they realized that if Jesus had any chance of being the king of Israel, that chance was now long gone. Because by disrupting all the business transactions there, he had just alienated the Jewish aristocracy, the very people who he needed if he was going to be king. They were gonna provide him with the money and the political connections to be king. That was no longer an option. So as they sat there, they realized that their hopes and dreams Those are gone. All of that time they invested, all those years, for what? See, this day is a day where they realized that everything they assumed to be true about Jesus was totally and completely wrong. Like Icarus, they had flown too close to the sun, and now they were drowning in the sea. They were so wounded by this particular day, I mean, we don't think about that, but they were so wounded by this day that they end up abandoning Jesus four days later. Why do you think they left him behind? Why do you think they were like, we're done? They leave him four days later because of this day, because of what he didn't do. Everything they believed to be true about him as the Messiah, it was wrong. And ultimately, it upended their entire world. But what they couldn't appreciate and what they didn't know is that Jesus was something much, much better. You see, all of us in here, I don't care who you are, we all believe that if we would just, if the whole world would just see the world through our eyes, it'd be a better place, right? Am I right? Don't lie to me. I know you're saying it. I know you believe it, right? We all believe it to be true. And that's exactly what this day was supposed to be about for the disciples. Because on this day, Jesus was supposed to become king. And you know what he was able to do? He was going to be able to make everybody else think what he thought. That's what pride is, right? You think what I think. I'm right. You're wrong. You need to do it my way. But what he shows us is that pride is not the way that you change the world. Not at all. The way that you change the world is through humility. Think about what he uses this day for. Palm Sunday, it sets into motion a sequence of events that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. He doesn't become king because of this day. And it's on that day that he dies. You all said you were going to be here on uh, Monday, Thursday, right? You're signing up for that. You might as well come for Good Friday also. Will we see you then? Okay. Good Friday. On Good Friday, in case you don't remember the story, you'll need to come and hear it. But in case you don't remember, Jesus, does he offer any defense for why he shouldn't be killed? Does he justify his actions? Does he say why he shouldn't be there? No not once. He gets to the place where he's about to die and he embodies pure humility. And think about how that one act of humility has changed our world forever. Forever. The reason why we remember Jesus is not because he was a leader who was full of himself and thought he was better than everyone else. The reason why we remember Jesus is because he was a humble, humble man. But I'm gonna be straight with you. It's hard to be humble. It's real difficult. And I say that not because I'm arrogant or because I think you're arrogant. I think it's really hard because the reality is we all know what we should be doing. When I give you the choice between pride and humility, which one should you choose? I mean, obviously it's humility, right? But it's not that easy, is it? particularly when you're trying to lead a good life. I mean, if you make a mistake and you intentionally hurt somebody, you know what you're supposed to do, right? What are you going to do? You're going to apologize for it. You know when you did it intentionally. You know when you got to do the apology. But it's different when you're trying to do the right things and then you hurt somebody. It's a lot harder in those circumstances to apologize and say you were wrong. Am I right about that? Now, here's how I have God help me through this. I always ask God in my life, to expose my faults and my flaws. I'm constantly asking God to do that. Show me where my faults and my flaws exist. And the way that God helps me see this is by grounding me in other people's realities. This is so key. God grounds me in other people's realities. So let me give you an example of this. As a pastor, I get up here and I preach sermons all the time. And sometimes the things that I say they end up upsetting certain people. Now remember, this is a hypothetical question It's never happened before. (laughs) Okay? Some of the things that I say, it ends up upsetting people. Now when this happens, because I hope you all realize, like my intention in being up here is to say things to make you think, to draw you closer to God. Like my goal up here is not to make you upset. Like that's not why I'm here. But when I do make someone upset, and I hear about it, my first reaction is pride jumps up and it's like, hey, you didn't do anything wrong. You were doing the right thing. You were just trying to preach the word. You were just trying to do what you were supposed to do. So don't you dare apologize because you were in the right. Now, that's where I have to take a step back and I have to ask myself, okay, what would Jesus do in this situation? And I try to enter into where he is on Palm Sunday. So I stop defending myself. I stop justifying my actions and I say, okay, where did I go wrong here? And so I ask myself the question. And in order to do that, I have to get in and become grounded in your reality. I have to ask, why did what I say upset you? And more often than not, it's because I pricked on some nerve inside of you. I didn't mean to do it, but I pricked on some nerve inside of you that really hit you deep down. Now, when I hear about that, my response, because of the way I've been training myself, is to just straight-up apologize, because that's not what I'm here for. I'm not trying to make you mad. I'm not trying to make you upset. And to me, it's more important to preserve the relationship than to come back in an email and say, well, this is why I'm right and this is why you're wrong, right, like, like, that doesn't do any good. I'm gonna tell you that I'm sorry. And I really am when I do that. And that's the humility. It's not just like a false thing of, oh, I'm just gonna apologize because that's what I should do. I really mean it because it hurts me to know that I've hurt you. And I would never want to do that. Now, this is so important for you to hear from me today because I want you to understand that I know that this is one example from my life, but I know that you all deal with the same examples in your life all the time. And so this idea of being grounded in somebody else's reality, it brings me back to the story of Icarus for just one moment. So in the story of Icarus, when he's flying in the air, right, the whole idea of flying, what does that represent? In the story, that represents human progress, does it not? Okay, is it wrong to want to fly? Is it wrong to want to do well in your life? No, it's not at all. It is perfectly fine to want to do that. What is wrong is when you fly and you're never willing to come back down. If Icarus had just kept his sights on land, if he had remained grounded in his father's reality, not too high, not too low, right in the middle, then he wouldn't have succumbed to his own pride. And the reality is we are all Icarus. There's not a single one of us in here who is not. We all fly too close to the sun. And in the end, I want you to know that it's a reality we all have to deal with. And so I wanna leave you with this today. I've said a lot of things today. I want you to leave with this one thing. Can you do one thing for me this week? One thing. They can, I guess not you guys, huh? (laughs) They're like, i got to see you on Friday, so I guess I'll try. (laughs) Do this one thing for me. The next time you find yourself justifying your own behavior, the next time you're sitting there and saying, I'm right and you're wrong, take a step back. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? Stop defending yourself. Stop justifying what you're saying and ask yourself, am I flying too close to the sun? And you'll probably answer honestly, yes, I am. And just remember in that moment, the way that Jesus changed the world for the better was not because he was boastful and proud. It was because he was a humble man. And you can change the world for the better too. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www. Dot firstpresah.org For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez Family of Faith.